Hello, and welcome to the second instalment of the Tales from Heritage podcast. I'm your host, William Ringham, a former pupil from the class of 2020. Previously, we discussed the life of the founder, George Heriot. Today, we look to explore the earliest years of the hospital, from its foundation in 1628 to the opening in 1659. Prepare yourself as we try to solve the mystery of the architect, bring to light the occupation of Oliver Cromwell, and gossip about ghosts. To pick up where we left off from the last episode, after George Heriot's death and his will was read, what was found in his will should come as no surprise. Heriot clearly stated that he wanted to found a hospital for the poor, favourless bairns of Edinburgh Burgesses. Word of his plan was already known to a few of Heriot's close relations, and in particular Dr Walter Balconquall, who shared a close friendship with Heriot as well as being his nephew. Thus. Balconquall set out to fulfil the will of Heriot. He, along with the governors, decided on a field just south of the grass market as the location for the hospital, and on the 13th of July 1627 they sent a ship to Norway to bring home joisting and other timber for the hospital. On the very same day, Balconquall presented the Book of Statutes to the governors, a task which George Heriot specified for Balconquall to undertake, displaying Heriot's highest regard for him. A total of 23,625 pounds, 10 shillings and three and a half pennies were set aside from what Herit had left to be put towards the construction and funding of the hospital. Just like in the last episode, I shall compare this sum to its value today, which is a staggering £6,168,252.01. On July the 1st, 1628, the foundation stone for George Herrick's hospital was laid. It was accounted by the treasurer on the day that the stone was laid that, in the name of God, we begin to lay the ground stain on ain Tuesday after the sermon, and I gave a drink siller to the master mason and his companions at the founding of the walk. Any few former pupils listening may have noticed the description of the original building of the hospital in the treasurer's record as the walk, spelt W-O-R-K at the time, and can be translated as an effort or achievement in Old Scots. The walk, W-A-R-K, is what the old building was originally known as by the boys at the hospital, but pupils now tend to call it the quad or main building. The treasurer also curiously accounts in 1632 payment for the six women that drew in the cart. This is a very unusual discovery as it was definitely not expected for women to be subject to manual labour in the 17th century. The only explanation for this tale is that these female labourers were hardened criminals. It can only be assumed that these individuals had committed the most serious of offences as this punishment was deemed worse than execution for women at the time. There is even a note from the treasurer describing that the convicts were shackled to prevent their escape. The George Harris Hospital was clearly no mean feat to build, especially at the time. The incredibly ornate detail of the building has been described by many through history and was notably described by Daniel Defoe in 1724 as a large stately building, the most magnificent of its kind in the world. So much can be said about the original building, and it could take a whole podcast to describe it. Some notable points are the 200 windows, of which all but two are decorated completely individually. The eclectic mix of architectural styles is also notable, combining both Gothic, 
neoclassical and English domestic work. With Harriet's being such a beautiful and impressive building, you may have thought that the designer would have wanted to have been known for their clearly inspirational conception. This, however, is far from the truth. It was held as common knowledge during the early years of the hospital that the building was designed by renowned architect at the time, Inigo Jones. Just as George Harriet was goldsmith to King James I and VI and Queen Anne, Inigo Jones was their respective architect. Jones and Harriet would have been acquaintances and known of each other's work for the royals, signalling the link between the two men. Jones is most famous for the design of Banqueting House in Whitehall Palace, London, and the Queen's House in Greenwich, London, both buildings completed for the royals. The school archives contain a report from 1855 titled Who Was the Architect of Harriet's Hospital by Councillor Robert Ritchie, one of the governors at the hospital. His report details dozens of accounts of historical essays and books ascribing Inigo Jones as the architect of Harriet's, further strengthening the evidence to suggest that Jones was in fact the architect of the hospital. Furthermore, it is clear that Jones will have visited Edinburgh many points of his life whilst designing other buildings in Scotland including Drumlin Rig Castle, Dumfries Town Hall and Glamis Castle, all buildings attributed to Jones despite a lack of evidence. It is noted in the early meeting minutes of the governors that the plans of the hospital were given to them by Dr. Balconquall, but with no mention of Jones. In fact, much like the other Scottish buildings ascribed to Jones, there is no hard evidence to suggest that he designed the hospital, which begs the question, if there is no hard evidence of who designed George Harriet's hospital, then who did design the hospital? William Wallace was appointed as Master Mason when the building of the school began. We know this as it was recorded by the governors. His work of constructing the hospital would have had some influence on the design without a doubt. One might think that the job of Mason and architect would have been similar but requiring a different skill set at the time, so I find this hard to believe. Another former pupil, Mr Hippolyte Blanc, argued to the contrary, and after extensive research he was quoted in a 1928 edition of the Herriotter saying, I cannot help stating my conviction on a review of all points that Wallace was an architect in practice, that he designed Herriot's hospital in the style he had been practising, and, as his magnum opus, designed it with the skill and refinement of detail which his culture and experience made him capable of doing. The mystery of who the architect was continues as once again there is only evidence that Wallace was the master mason and no building plans of his can be found at the hospital. A further report from 1959, the tercentenary year of the opening of George Harriet's, was written by the Old Edinburgh Club, a group who write about the historic buildings of Edinburgh. It too refutes the proposition of Inigo Jones being the architect, as there is no evidence to suggest this, and they say that the building does not look anything like any of Jones's other works. They agree with former pupil Blanc and state that William Wallace was the architect, and his designs were finished off after his death by the incoming master mason, William Ayton. It is strange that both Wallace and Ayton never claimed to have designed such a monumental building, making it hard to believe that they actually did. In reality, the debate of who designed Harriet's still remains a mystery to this day. Ritchie's report from 1855 on the topic concludes with a recommendation to the governors that, and I quote, should it be deemed proper to raise the foundation below the basement to ascertain whether any documents have been deposited, it could be easily effected at a very small expense and without doing the smallest injury to the building. 
The suggestion is merely thrown out. Should nothing be discovered, no great harm can be done. An attempt may be excused in consideration of the object, which is to throw light upon the history of one of the finest edifices in Scotland, and, if possible, to ascertain with certainty to whom the merit of the designs belongs. The raising of the foundation stone may be the most direct way to solve the mystery of who designed the hospital. However, I could not imagine it only being of small expense today. You may be wondering, like myself, as to why no records of the original drawings existed, yet accounts of the laying of the foundation stone and so forth do exist. It can only be assumed that the original plans were destroyed during the occupation of the hospital by Oliver Cromwell. The hospital took 31 years to complete and then open from its foundation date. This was due to multiple factors, not least the effect of the civil war and the occupation of the hospital by Oliver Cromwell and his army. After defeating the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar, Cromwell made his way to Edinburgh and took over the near-complete Heriot's Hospital in 1650. Cromwell used the hospital for its intended purpose and stationed his wounded soldiers in the rooms of the quadrangle. Cromwell placed his cannons in the grounds of the school towards Edinburgh Castle, and there are tales of him using the chapel as a stable for his horses, which seems a slightly sacrilegious move from a so-called Puritan. During a renovation of the quadrangle's paving, evidence of Cromwell's occupation was found. The remains of musket shots, rusted horseshoes and oyster shells were all uncovered and remain in the school's archives today. After only a year at the hospital, Cromwell claimed all the rights to its income as he laid claim to the fact that George Herriot conducted the majority of his business in London and thus not deeming his property as that of a Scotsman but that of an Englishman. Before Cromwell arrived at the hospital, the governors rented the completed parts of the building to tenants in order to source income for the hospital. Cromwell again used this against the governors in its takeover by telling them that this was improper use of the building as it was not in line with what George Herriot, the founder, had intended. After years of liaising with Cromwell and his general monk, the ownership of the hospital finally returned to the governors, yet some of Cromwell's troops still remained. Our last story, in fact, is that of one of Cromwell's men, who lingered about the hospital after its opening in 1659. It is thought that this man, one of Cromwell's drummers, was left behind when his army departed as he was supposedly too sick or wounded to make the return journey south. The drummer remained in the hospital when boys had started to be admitted, and it is said that for some unexplained reason he and the boys were never on great terms with each other. The drummer met his end from the infamous drummer's step, in the northwest turret of the school, where the unnamed soldier took a fatal tumble to the bottom of the spiral staircase. The boys who were witness to the scene never gave the details as to whether the drummer met his end with an unfortunate misfooting or if he was nudged by a fiendish young occupant of the hospital. Nonetheless, the step from which the drummer fell remained an ominous reminder of the event, as boys meticulously avoided placing a foot on the stone as to not invoke the spirit of the drummer. For years the step stood out as it was left at its original level, whilst the surrounding steps started to show wear through centuries of footfall. Today the step has been mostly forgotten about, but there are the odd stories of ghostly sightings of the drummer still happening around the school. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of the Tales from Heriot's podcast. If you have any leads as to who you think that the architect might be, or if you have had any encounters with any ghosts at George Heriot's, we would be more than happy to hear them. 
Please join us next time as we finally get to the opening of the school and look at some of the early tales from when the boys were there. Expect criminal dogs, schoolboy trials and hot air balloon rides.